Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. I want to share with you guys one of my all-time favorite companies. I'm passionate about this company. I've been using them for over three years, and they make some of the cleanest and most affordable personal care products for the entire family, personal care and wellness products. So they have herbal remedies and tinctures. They have personal care products. My husband and myself use their deodorant on a daily basis. And most recently, they've launched a home care cleaning line, which we now have transitioned pretty much all of our cleaning products over to their their cleaning products. So we use their cleaning spray and their dishwasher detergent and their laundry detergent and their dishwashing soap. And we have been so impressed with not only the quality and simplicity of their products, but also the affordability and small company, family-owned company experience that we get when we shop with them. So the company is Earthly and they are just phenomenal. You can go shop at earthly.com and earthly is spelled E-A-R-T-H-L-E-Y.com slash R-E-F slash T Kulik. Alternatively, you can thank me for your checkout. Um, Thank you. Thank me for your order in the checkout section. And you can use the code Taylor10 to save 10% off your first order. I am so excited for our guest today. Dr. Courtney Kayla is joining us, and we will be chatting about chiropractic care. What is it? Um, chiropractic care for the pediatric population. And then we're also going to be talking about the polyvagal theory and a little bit about sleep training and intuitive parenting. And we just kind of touch on a lot of stuff. Um, I feel like we were really flowing so well with our conversation. We have so much in common, and I'm so grateful that I was able to sit down and talk face-to-face with Dr. Courtney. If you don't know Dr. Courtney, here is a little bit about her. If there is one truth that guides chiropractor Courtney Kayla, it's that we are all called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. While her modality is serving families through chiropractic care specialized in fertility, preconception, prenatal, pediatric, women's health, and whole family wellness, her purpose is much greater, to be a conduit of Jesus's love and healing. Certified in Webster and MC2 techniques, she uses a tonal or nerve-centered approach, meaning she doesn't start by just popping and cracking. She begins with the nervous system to gain a deep understanding of what's really going on. Courtney has been practicing chiropractic since 2018 and is the founder of Our Well House. She's put her love and passion into a physical space to create a holistic wellness center and place for people to find peace and community. Hi, everyone. Welcome. I'm so excited to have Dr. Courtney Kayla here with us today to talk about chiropractic care for babies and polyvagal theory. Dr. Courtney Kayla is one of my favorite influencers, healthcare providers to follow on Instagram. Dr. Courtney, thank you so much for being here with us today. 
Thank you for having me, Taylor. And honestly, you're one of my favorites too. Oh, that makes me so happy. Yeah. So the feelings are mutual. Thank you for those kind words. Dr. Courtney, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a doctor of chiropractic, but I practice a little bit differently than what most people think of when they think of chiropractic, right? So usually if you think of chiropractic, you think of lots of fast movements, twisting, cracking, and popping, which there's a lot of value in that kind of care. I just choose to assess the nervous system, which is actually how chiropractic care was founded. So I'm a little bit old school, I guess you could say, but it kind of seems new school. Like people are like, this is a new kind of chiropractic. And I'm like, no, no, this is how chiropractic was founded. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do specialize in the nervous system, but also I have specialties where I see and serve pregnant women and infants, kids, toddlers, preteens, you know, kind of all the stages of growth for family and family development. That's amazing. And we all have nervous systems, right? So, so it can be beneficial for anybody, right? So I get asked a lot what my thoughts are on chiropractic care. And a lot of people don't know this, but we are, my family sees a chiropractor and we just moved across the country. So unfortunately we are just getting established with chiropractic care. And I say just moved across the country as in seven months ago, Um, but it's been crazy. And so we see chiropractic, um, a chiropractor frequently and get adjusted frequently. And that's really important to us, but I'd love it if you could explain kind of why parents specifically related to children and babies, why parents would choose to have their children um, see a chiropractor and who that would benefit. Oh, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head with saying everyone has a nervous system, right? It's so true. Like people are like, who should get adjusted? I'm like, well, if you have a nervous system, you should probably, you know, get your nervous system checked. So when it comes to pediatric chiropractic care, or like, why would you want to bring your precious, perfect little newborn baby into a chiropractor? One, most people, you know, think there's going to be lots of fast movements, twisting, cracking, and popping, and that's just not the case. But two, if we look at the neurological development, so 65% of a child's nervous system develops in their first year of life. And when I tell parents that they're like, whoa, like really, that sounds like a lot. But when you have a baby, you get to have like a first front row seat to all of this development. And it's like, you remember the day where they can only see like a foot out in front of their face. And then one day they're on their tummy on their floor and they can track you from across the room. And you're like, you can see me, you know? And like, you didn't have to teach them how to do that. Like that's their brain making those connections with their body. And so that continues to happen over the entire course of their first year. And so really just allowing their brain and body to make those connections as optimally as possible. But then we're like, well, why wouldn't their body be making those connections optimally in the first place? Well, 80% of infants born, no matter how they're born, no matter how natural or, you know, full of intervention, Um, they have some sort of upper cervical interference that's visible to the untrained eye. There was a study done by, I think it's Viola Fryman. Um, she's an osteopath. Yes. Um, and she, yeah, so she did the study and studied a bunch of infants and found that 80% of infants were favoring one side over the other. When they're in their car seat, they would always turn their head to the right or they're latching and nursing on one breast better than the other. And with little babies, like sometimes parents are like, oh, they love the right side of their body. They're going to be right-handed. This is great. Mm -hmm. But at this developmental point, we really want to see them balancing both sides because that's helping both sides of their brain grow. So we don't want to see them favoring one side of their body over the other. So keeping all of that in mind, 
that's why I think it's important for your precious, perfect little newborn to have their nervous system checked by a pediatric specialty nervous system centered chiropractor to just make sure that we can optimize all of that growth and development that's occurring. I love that. That makes so much sense. So another question that I get asked a lot is, you know, how long, and I know this depends on the person, but how long does a a person or a baby um, need to see a chiropractor. And for me and my family, we use chiropractic care almost as wellness care and kind of maintenance in a way. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah. So on my intake forms, I even ask, I'm like, how are you expecting to use chiropractic care in your life? Are you wanting lifestyle care? Are you wanting relief care? I specialize in more of lifestyle care. So um, it's basically just checking nervous systems consistently to make sure that you're functioning optimally, that you're adapting to all the stressors within your environment. But there is a portion where when people first start their care with us that we call restorative care, which means depending on the function of their nervous system, the stressors that they may have encountered in the past or are currently encountering and how their bodies adapted that, we may start with like a really intensive frequency of like two to three times a week for six weeks and then we reevaluate. So we have this cool technology that we use in our office and many offices use it across the country um, called the CLA insight scan. And what this scan does is it gives us a objective finding for the nervous system. Cause before having the scan, it was kind of like, well, how are you feeling? But feeling doesn't always indicate function, right? Like we don't judge our health based off of how we feel because we can't feel heart disease and cancer. We judge our health based off of how we function. How's your sleep, digestion, skin, menstrual cycle, some of those things. But this scan will show us how your nerves are communicating with your organs, how your nerves are communicating with your muscles, and then your adaptability reserve, which means if you were to encounter a physical, chemical, or emotional stressor, how likely would your nervous system be able to adapt it? Or is it just going to create like a roadblock of communication between your brain and body, and your body's going to have to create a detour to get that message where it needs to go. Mm, That makes so much sense. So keep all that in mind. Like I see people most of the time, once a week, at least, but we may start people with a really intensive frequency to kind of catch their body up if they haven't been under care before. Yeah. And, you know, I am no expert in I'm not the chiropractor here, but I have seen a lot of chiropractors and I always think of it when people talk to me about this or ask me about this, like, okay, with a medical doctor, if you have a symptom and you go to your medical doctor and you're expecting a medication or a treatment to resolve that symptom, you're expecting kind of a one shot kind of deal. Um, And so I think a lot of people that kind of translates to their perception of what chiropractic care should look like and should be. But I like to think of chiropractic care more in the terms of like, it's not the same, but like going to the gym and exercising, like you want to keep it up because you have all of these, like you said, you have all of these stressors in your life. We all have stressors in our lives where, you know, I'm slouched at a desk all day. I'm, I'm holding a baby on one hip the majority of the time. Like my body is not going to stay in this ideal state and be able to function optimally unless I'm continuously taking care of it. And part of that is getting my nervous system assessed. Absolutely. Someone asked me a question on a Q and a the other day, and it was like, if I got one adjustment and it didn't work, like, then what should I do? What should I do next? And I'm like, well, did you go to the gym one time and you didn't get a Mm. six pack? So then you like stopped going to the gym, you know? So it is more of like this, like training kind of process for our nervous system. It's a great analogy for it. Absolutely. 
Well, Dr. Courtney, thank you so much for explaining and educating us about chiropractic care. I know you have a ton of information on your Instagram, which is it's at Dr. Courtney Kayla, right? Yep. So you have a ton of information, I think highlights about the benefits of chiropractic care. So your Instagram account is just a wealth of information. If anybody wants to learn more about that. Um, let's move into the topic that I'm really excited to talk to you about. I'm excited to talk to everything about everything with you, um, but polyvagal theory. So I know you've posted about this before. I feel like it's kind of becoming almost like a buzzword um, because it's a little bit trending. And I'm really curious to know more about polyvagal theory. Oh, yeah. I think just the vagus nerve in general, I think people are really discovering how like connected it is to all of our overall functions. We have a poster in our office of just kind of like the mapping of the vagus nerve. And it literally is like from the brain all the way down into the gut. Like it's just this massive nerve. So yeah, polyvagal theory is something that I recently, well, right within the past few years have researched and because more of like experience, I've just kind of seen it with kids in my office, a difference between how kids were born and maybe some of the interventions that occurred versus kids that didn't have those interventions and some of the social functioning that we're seeing. So let's just kind of rewind and just dive into like, what is polyvagal theory? So basically like when people, if you're familiar with the nervous system, you're usually familiar with the two branches of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, but this researcher, Stephen Porges, he hypothesized about this third branch, which is called the vagal branch. So this branch is dedicated to our social interactions. And that's why we call it the social vagus. So the idea is that the sympathetic nervous system is like our fight or flight responses. And so our parasympathetic nervous system handles like our regenerative functions, like sleeping and digesting. But this new theory and finding is that the social vagus shows all three systems can and will respond to stress in their own unique way, but that the body prefers this newest social vagus system. And so only when the social vagus fails to satisfy our biological needs, do we resort to the parasympathetic the sympathetic, the fight or flight response, which are like the less favored responses. So basically the nervous system tries to work hierarchically, hierarchically. So it goes from its newest to its oldest systems for dealing with stress and satisfying these needs. So a great example, and I give this example in my office too, when we're going through those reports of, Hey, how is your nervous system adapting? it's with healthy infants. So they will first attempt using the social vagus of their nervous system to get their biological needs met by using like subtle communications and vocalizations, expressions that are controlled by the vagus nerve. If this method fails them, which it often may, infants will resort to crying and screaming, which is indicative of the sympathetic branch of the nervous system being active, that fight or flight response, right? So the sympathetic approach will usually solve the problem, right? Like if you set your baby down on the ground and they're just kind of like, eh, eh, you're like, you can tell they're not comfortable, but you're like, I just got to get this thing done. And then if they start, wah, you're like, oh no. And you stop what you're doing and you go get your baby. So that usually solves the problem. But however, when it doesn't, and their needs are still not met for a sufficiently long period of time, the infant will resort to what's called parasympathetic shutdown. So this is the oldest stress management system. It goes back to kind of like this reptilian freeze response where it's like, if you are a baby out in the woods, you may like 
oh, wow, like, coo, ka, like, where's my mama? No one comes. Then you scream, ah, ah, mom, I'm here. Where are you? No one comes. You'll actually go silent. And it's because, well, mom's not coming, but I don't want to make sure that something bigger or scary doesn't come so that I can stay alive. So it's this freeze response. You're still as stressed as that fight or flight. You're just quiet. So parents and professionals often interpret this latter systemic response as a positive form of self-soothing, when in reality, it's a suboptimal nervous system state of being and a last resort for dealing with unresolvable stress. So we can kind of, it's like, how does our body even get into that state? You know, like what the heck happens? Like these are perfect little babies, right? but it really all relates directly back to birth and those early moments of life because the methods babies adopt for dealing with stress becomes conditioned as a preferred method moving forward. So if we look at our world today, it's apparent that like the social Vegas method of stress management, including like calm communication and social interaction is in short supply. And so Mm -hmm. when we look at that birth process, like why is that, um, John Chitty PhD, he's actually who I, um, was looking at his research for all of this because he's looked at the extensive issues of like this hierarchical nervous system and vagus nerve as it relates to birth. But basically he says that like we cut the cord right away, right? Like we sever this connection and separate the baby from its mom to wash the vernix off, inject them with foreign elements, circumcise or perform other interventions, which are all profoundly intense and far beyond the social vagus's ability to adapt. And this results in the baby's nervous system getting primed right away from day one to employ the sympathetic fight or flight or straight to like a parasympathetic shutdown response where babies where I have babies that come into my office where the parents are like, they're just such a good baby. They're just quiet all day. They sleep all day. They sleep all night. And I'm like, hold up. No, that is an under aroused baby. I need them stimulating to the like stressors within their environment. They should be responding. Mm-hmm. They should be letting you know when they've, um, when they're hungry, when they're tired, when they've eliminated the elimination of communication, like there should be signs and communication here, but the world tells you that a quiet baby is a good baby. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I want them a little pissed off. Like, you know, not angry, but like, I want them verbal in their own little ways of communication. So, um, basically like when the biologically appropriate response is like this activation of the vagus nerve, and that opens up social responses and cues that come natural whenever we allow like a mom and baby to just bond and look at each other in the eyes and peace and quiet. And that's really what midwives have been encouraging moms and babies to do for as long as they've been around the birth setting. Mm -hmm. Wow. When you're talking about this, I'm just... I'm always amazed by the amount of information that we just don't know. And like the lack of understanding generally and generally speaking, like our culture, our society, the lack of understanding of how people work and specifically how babies work. It's just, it never ceases to blow my mind, honestly. And it's scary. Yeah. And I mean, that's why I say like the greatest science of all is the science of normal human physiology. Mm -hmm. So like you can tell me, I don't know. I can't even think of an example of a random fact, but you can tell me like a random fact. And I'm like, okay, I see that there's research that supports this. Great. But does it make sense for how our bodies were created? Right. No, like it doesn't make sense to me that my baby is going to lay there and cry for an extended period of time. And that's how I'm going to teach them to sleep and to soothe themselves when every instinct within me is like, I just want to go hold my baby. Right. 
That's not a mistake. We're not created to intuitively want to respond to our babies on accident. Yeah, it's it's scary how increasingly disconnected I think we have been trained and brainwashed to become from our babies and from our our bodies. Um, and we think and we think that that's the right thing to do. We're, we're being told that that's the right thing to do. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about sleep training. You already touched on touched on it a little bit. So always have to you know put a disclaimer. We're not shaming anybody who's made a decision to sleep train. Um, I have tried sleep training before with my first child before I really knew better and it just didn't feel right to me. Knowledge is power. That's I'm all about information. I'm all about empowering parents with accurate information so that they can make well-rounded decisions that work for their family. So I am never going to advocate for withholding information or not talking about an issue just to make people comfortable. So with all of that being said, we're not judging, we're not shaming, but let's talk about separation-based sleep training. And, you know, I've said this before, there's the theory that you're explaining to me and some of the research behind it, some of it is not new. So I think it's Dr. Stuart Shanker who studies self-regulation. I'm pretty sure he has some research and I know there are others as well, but he's the main one that I've looked at his research um, that demonstrates exactly what you're describing with the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, going into shutdown mode when a baby is left to cry. And so it's interesting to kind of see that research and um, see those theories paralleled amongst different people with different theories and different ideas, because so clearly there's something there. Um, what can you explain a little bit more about what is happening when we are leaving our babies alone in a crib to cry related okay. to polyvagal theory? Absolutely. So this is something that I mean, it's why on every intake form, like I ask if they've gone through sleep training, if so, I list what the variety of methods and I want them to check the box for whichever method was used. Um, but I know that if they've done any sort of cry it out, which, you know, even some of the most popular programs that are called gentle still involve crying it out for a set period of time. Mm -hmm. I know that that child is not functioning in their social vagus because they've gone through the hierarchy of the nervous system where we start with the social vagus. And this is assuming that their birth process allowed them to start with the social vagus, right? So we start with the social vagus, then they go through the sympathetic fight or flight, and then they get to a parasympathetic shutdown. But I explain this to the parents because as this child continues under consistent nervous system focused chiropractic care, will actually see them go back through that hierarchy. They won't just go from parasympathetic shutdown to, to social Vegas. I wish that was the case. We are seeing them go from parasympathetic shutdown. So under aroused to sympathetic fight or flight to where they are now screaming and crying and things get worse before they get better to then social Vegas. And that's something I always want parents to be aware of because it's weird to have your child adjusted and for them to then scream and cry and respond more, that can be hard as a parent, especially when mm -hmm. you've gotten to this place where you thought that you were teaching them to self-regulate, right? Mm -hmm. um, and to see them kind of go through more dysregulation, but that is really beneficial for their nervous system. So that's how as chiropractors were able to kind of help them through that like polyvagal theory. Um, but if we kind of like look back at just 
our whole like modern world and this setup of why we're seeing so many people just like not expressing the social Vegas. It's like, if we look at pregnancy, like the, the baby's been hearing the mother's voice, the rhythm of her heartbeat, tasted and smelled her presence in the womb, felt her movements, experienced the world through mom's experience. Right. So connecting to the mother after birth is so important to offer this like smooth, or some people may even say pleasurable transition into the world that allows the baby to open up and activate their social vagus, which is the portion of the nervous system that's bringing its fullest expression, which has an impact on the entire rest of their life. So to have the baby like right there, physically connected with mom, you can look into the baby's eyes. They can look back, they can smell, feel, taste, and know that they're close to home. That's what opens up that higher level. It's allowing us to connect with our environment better, better with other people and communicate in like a nonverbal way. And that's that higher social functioning. So if we look at that typical birthing in our modern world, though, we've been separating babies from their moms, like I said, robbing them both of that sacred connection, which is in fact shutting down their higher nervous system and encouraging them to employ the more primitive aspects. So it's recovering this and helping families come back to this higher social functioning. Like that's my goal that nervous system focused chiropractors know the importance of this and that's how they can serve your family really well. Wow. That's amazing. What would you say? So I know chiropractic care can be helpful in that. Are there, is there anything else that parents can do if they feel like, you know, they know their baby didn't have that maybe optimal afterbirth experience, or they just feel like their baby isn't really signaling a whole lot to them. Is there anything else that families can do to help with this? I get this question a lot of like, you know, I'm doing a report and I'm showing people the function of their nervous system. And they're like, okay, great. Like I'm going to continue care, but like, what else can I be doing? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I always say, I'm like, man, if I can find anything else that can remove interference to your nervous system, like I would shout it from the rooftops. Cause yeah, it might replace my job, but it would also make my job a lot easier, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, man, if I could find something that would do that, that would be great. Currently, I don't know of anything that can remove interference from your nervous system besides like a very specific nervous system centered adjustment from a chiropractor. But if we look at the three things that can cause interference to the nervous system, like we've talked a lot about the birth process, right? And that has physical, chemical, and emotional stressors. Or within the philosophy of chiropractic, we call it trauma, toxins, and negative thoughts. So this is really where I started sharing about this stuff on social media, because like we look at physical traumas, we can't avoid like a car accident. There are some physical traumas that can occur during birth that you don't necessarily have control over. So we don't want to like, we can't live a life trying to avoid those, you know, Mm -hmm. now negative thoughts, that's like a constant mental health journey that we're on, but toxins, I'm like, well, those other two are pretty out of our control, but like toxins, while a lot of it is outside of our control, this chemical aspect, a lot of it is also within our control. So that's where I started talking a lot about just like how we can live as natural as possible and eliminate a lot of these toxins from within our homes, because I'm seeing that affect nervous system function as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Um, Okay. So here's another question that I get asked a lot and I'm always curious about too, because it didn't work with my kids, but can chiropractic care help um, children or babies with sleep? And if so, how? 
didn't work for my kids, but they had other issues that were impacting sleep. Yes. And, you know, as a chiropractor who specializes in the nervous system, like I always want to kind of my own little disclaimer, we don't treat or like diagnose anything. Mm -hmm. Like my goal is just to give your body every opportunity to restore its normal function. For some people, that means that, you know, they're having poor quality of sleep and the night after their adjustment, this is actually one of my like, um, post-adjustment disclaimers that I talk through with my new patients is I'm like, Hey, like I would expect you to sleep really well tonight because we're getting that body into that parasympathetic rest and digest, which is like our normal state of being, we should be at this more like peaceful state. Actually, truly, we should have a good balance between the two. We shouldn't be stuck in this parasympathetic rest and digest mode. And we shouldn't be like stuck in this sympathetic fight or flight mode. We should be right in the middle, which means if you were to encounter a physical, chemical, or emotional stressor, you can hit the gas. If you need to hit the gas, you can hit the brake if you need to hit the brake, but you don't have a dominant response one over the other. Mm. So I do see it improve sleep quality and sleep function with kids and with adults. And most commonly it's like the night after their first adjustment, they'll like come back and they're like, I slept 12 hours. Like or I took a nap right when Mm -hmm. like, like I got home for my appointment. It's because that rest and digest that regenerative function is being restored. Cool. That's awesome. I wish it, maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll work this time around with my baby who hasn't seen a chiropractor in seven months, but he's actually sleeping pretty well. So we bed share, so we get pretty good sleep. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Um, that, that is just such great information, Dr. Courtney. I feel like I just always want parents to understand that like, if you're choosing to leave your baby alone to cry, it's first of all, it's not something that you have to do. It's not a rite of passage. It's not like this valuable life lesson that you have to teach your child. If you have to do it because you feel like your mental health is suffering and you have no other choices, unfortunately, maybe you have to make that decision, but I want you to make that decision knowing that you're not teaching your baby to self-soothe because, and again, I, where all of these kind of theories and these models really are so related and they really parallel each other. Co-regulation. We know from so much research that babies and children are designed to co-regulate with us. And I think that goes hand in hand with this polyvagal theory, this, this social nerve. Um, and so if you're leaving your baby alone to cry and they're, they stop crying and they go to sleep, it's not because they've self-soothed. It's because they're going into that parasympathetic state of the nervous system where they're kind of shutting down as a protective mechanism to preserve their energy. And again, and sometimes not like, shaming, yeah, it's just information. Like sometimes that is the best decision for your family. And mm-hmm. that's where I've had families come to me. And I, so I do ask on the intake form, like, have you sleep trained? If so, what methods have you used? And then I also ask this last question, which is how was that experience for your family? Because- yeah for some people like that sleep training was the best decision for them. And they don't, I don't want them to have regret over it. I just want them to be informed about how that may have shifted the neurological function for themselves and, or their child and what they can expect through chiropractic care with that. But, um, it's not always like, like you were saying, like sometimes that is the best thing that you need to do, but you need to make that decision from a place with having all the information and we can support those families through the sleep training process, whether they are choosing to sleep train or not, because we're allowing the nervous systems to adapt, even though that's a stressor that they're encountering. Yeah. I love that supporting them through it when they do need to make that decision. And the other thing is honestly, I mean, 
the majority of families that I work with, and of course I work with the families who didn't want to sleep train, um, but the majority of families that I talk to and work with who did attempt sleep training at one point, those parents really thought that they were doing the best thing for their babies. And so that is what I want to avoid. I want to change this, this conversation. I want to change the statistics so that it's not the majority of families are sleep training, not because they have to, not because that's the best choice for their family, but because that's what they, they've been made to believe that it's the best choice for their baby and that they're failing their baby somehow if they don't make that decision. And so that's really where the problem comes in. The problem isn't that some families, I mean, it is a problem depending on how you look at it. It is a problem that families aren't given the support and the resources that they need to not have to sleep train. To me, that's a huge problem. But the problem, the real problem isn't that there are some families who have made that decision and it's the best decision and they're going in with all of the information. The problem is that most families are not going into sleep training with all of the information. And many, many families come out of sleep training feeling a lot of regret and feeling like it just wasn't, it didn't feel good and they don't want to do it again. And they were miserable. And I've worked with families that have, you know, moms that have PTSD from sleep training. So that's really where the big problem is that I just, I want to avoid that. And I think to avoid that, we have to be having these conversations and we have to be sharing the information and the education with parents so that they know that. And we have to be able to do it in an open, shame-free way um, because that's the only way that we're going to change things. Absolutely. Dr. Courtney, can you, since we have a few more minutes, can you talk a little bit about your experience just with motherhood and you have, um, how old is your daughter now? She's 18 months. 18 months. Wow. That's crazy. I remember when she was born, I was, I I've been following you a long time. So I was so excited. I think I, I was following you even before you got pregnant with her. And, um, I just feel like very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, just so excited for you. Just so, you know, just so happy sharing in all of your joys. Um, but I've also just loved seeing you share about your experience with parenthood, motherhood, um, and just like, being your own mom and being the parent that you want to be and kind of this idea of parenting against the grain, which is really what my whole podcast is about. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and maybe share with us any tips that you have for just trusting your own tuition and um, intuition and trusting your baby? I think what's come like hand in hand with making informed decisions, you know, it's caused me to research so much. And then I also put all that research through the lens of normal human physiology it's given me so much peace in parenting. And if I would have gotten pregnant when I first wanted to, like we struggled to conceive for 18 months, we struggled with infertility, unexplained infertility. Um, if I would have gotten pregnant right when I wanted to, I don't think I would be parenting the same way that I am right now, because that 18 month hiatus, I just researched so much of like, parenting and birth processes. And, you know, a lot of it applies to my work, but a lot of the stuff doesn't. And so just giving my brain the opportunity to really see what all of us out there and what made the most sense to me. And it honed in on this, like gut instinct that everyone has, but our culture has made you believe that other people know you and your baby best. Mm -hmm. And it's really given me like an intuitive muscle that I've like really strengthened. So I currently like how I approach birth is I had more trust in my body than I in birthing at home than I did in a hospital. And I was like, honestly scared of having to birth in a hospital. Mm -hmm. Like I was so confident in my own ability to birth at home, which I did have a home birth with Rosie. 
um, it was hard, but a home birth. And um, with other like parenting decisions that have come along the way, I've tried to think like, oh, okay. So, you know what? We like feed on demand, right? Like it's a thing where people will do like scheduled feedings every three hours. Like we breastfed on demand and we went through an experience that they like labeled us as like, oh, they're feed on demand. Oh, they, they don't, um, they don't like want their baby to be bathed. They don't want their baby to be swaddled. Like it was like, we were labeled with all of these ways that we've gone against the norm, which the norm is the medical system that they just take your baby from you. They bathe them, they wipe them off, they swaddle them. And then they give their baby, you know, the baby back to you. So we were like labeled with all these ways that we were like going against all of that. Right. But it's because I have so much trust and I've like researched so much. I have so much trust in like this, our God-given innate ability to parent and to mother and to just lean into my own instincts, regardless of what other doctors say, regardless of what other moms say. So what I've struggled with, with like in motherhood and parenting is that I don't compare myself to other moms because I have so much confidence in how I mother because I've made informed decisions, which means I've made confident decisions. I compare myself to my husband. Mm. So that like lack of freedom where I'm like, my whole world is different. Mm -hmm. Yours is the same. Like that's been my motherhood transition struggle. It's hard to feel to like sacrifice everything as a mother, which we know going into parenthood that that's what it's going to look like. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I get the opportunity to sacrifice so much. And I think it's been transformative for me as a person. Um, it's made me a lot less selfish because you, it has to make you less selfish, but at the same time, it's hard when your, your husband doesn't have to sacrifice quite as much for sure. Yeah. It's something in our house that we're just trying to break down these societal norms and these like thought processes that who knows where they've come from, from, you know, years and years of just, this is the way things have always been done. We've always said like, just because that's the way you were raised or that's the way that things have always been done doesn't mean that that's the right or best way for our family. So Mm -hmm. do some research and let's come together and let's compare and let's figure out, you know, a compromise and a solution that works well for both of us. And so Mm -hmm. that's how we approached some like hot button topics, like the, you know, the forced pharmaceutical products that are happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think that's so important. This is another question that I get all the time is, you know, how do you get your, your partner, your husband to be on the same page as you when it comes to parenting decisions, or how do you get them to think like you when it comes to parenting decisions? And my answer is always, you have to have the conversation and to have the conversation. Cause I feel like a lot of times we're more focused on just talking at people and getting, making sure our point is heard and our voice is heard. But I think it's most helpful when you really get curious about the other person's point of view. So for example, if your husband wanted to spank your children and that was something that you didn't want to do, ask them, why do you want to spank? What do you think that you'll teach our our child by spanking? What are your fears and concerns if we don't spank? And then you can kind of dissect it that way and provide the information and And that is a much better way to kind of approaching disagreements and differences than just talking at somebody and and getting your point across. Absolutely. I think that if we could just be willing to ask those questions over everything, like why did the nurse want to swaddle my baby? What would happen if I decided to take the swaddle off? 
Mm-hmm. Should, like, you know, if we would be willing to ask those questions, I think as parents, we would come to a lot different decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've been thinking about this kind of topic a lot um, because I really want to figure out why do we have as a society, why do we have such a hard time going against the norm, the quote unquote norm? And I think it's partially because there is a lot of fear instilled with, with parenting and raising children. And if you don't do X, Y, Z, if you don't do it exactly this way, um, you know, there's a fear at the other end of it, a concern that somehow your child will not have the skills they need, or they'll get sick or they'll, you know, whatever it may be. And so, but a lot of times we're really not digging into those fears. We're just kind of accepting them and living our life in a way that is fear-based, even when we don't realize that we're living our life and parenting and making parenting decisions in a way that is inherently fear-based. And um, that's something that I've been wanting to dissect a little bit and figure out like the why and the how, how we got here and how do we move past that? I'm on the same page as you. I talked to so many families and I'm like, I just want to know like when this narrative really shifted and I'm sure that it was just build up, but it was like, Hey, in the sixties, like what laid the foundation for all of a sudden we've lost this trust for ourselves. And now we rely on other people and doctors and systems to tell us what's best for our baby and for our family. And Mm -hmm. a, a good example I do have of this is actually what happened with chiropractic. So Many of the people listening here have probably heard that chiropractors are quacks. Mm -hmm. I know that when I told my grandma that I was going to chiropractic school and I was so confident that I wanted to be a chiropractor, that God had called and created me to be a chiropractor. She said, oh, that is such a quack. And I was like, alrighty. (laughs) But we literally can look back. I have a highlight on Instagram called quackery, where I explain just this history of chiropractic. And it's like, literally... I can't remember the years. I'm going to get it wrong, but you can go and reference that highlight, but it's like the medical model was just becoming like popular. And before then it was a lot of like, um, like natural healers were kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Like there's like magnetic healers and there was some weird stuff, but like herbalists, like that was all very much the norm. And then the medical system was like, oh no, like here we're better. And this, these other like natural providers, started taking patients from the medical system and healing them. Like they were getting better and their doctors were like, wait, you're getting better by doing that. That's not cool. So the medical system really went into the government and said, Hey, we're evidence-based. Look at all this research that we've performed to Mm -hmm. like, you know, back what we do. They're not. So they started this propaganda. They literally created the committee of chiropractic quackery. That's Mm -hmm. why you've heard that chiropractors are quacks. The medical system created a committee where they just put this information into every medical textbook and out into the public and just created a lot of fear around chiropractors. And, um, it's like, it's just funny because it's like, you think that chiropractors are called quacks because of so-and-so's uncle got adjusted and it was a bad experience when really it's been this entire narrative of the medical conventional medical system just trying to get rid of anything that really competes with them. And they had laws written in where medical doctors could not associate themselves with other natural providers. And then that was changed, I think in the sixties or seventies to where it was like, Hey, you can collaborate with any professional you choose to, but they legally could not. It's wild. I, I saw a documentary a couple of years ago about that. I don't remember the name of it, but it was about all of the stuff that you just talked about. 
And I think what it boils down to is, you know, we're, we're living in this box. We're living in like this, I don't know, this, this box. And like, we have to be able to look outside of that box and we have to start peeling back the layers and making sure that the way that we're living is the way that we want to live and the way that feels in alignment with our bodies and our souls and realize that just because we're told something doesn't mean it's true. And who's telling us that? And why are they telling us that? And do they have our best interest at heart? And it's all just, it's really fascinating to me. And the, you know, to, to kind of back up what you said just about, you know, how chiropractic became known as chiropractors became known as quacks. What you said was that before like the sixties or whenever the medical industry kind of got to become the, the, the dominant way of health and wellness, the dominant paradigm before that, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, there have been natural healers and and chiropractors and herbalists and you know ch Chinese medicine doctors that practice Chinese medicine and things like that. And it's interesting because today, those are those practices are referred to alternative medicines, as if the medical system and and Western medicine, conventional medicine is just the right way and the only way and everything else is alternative. And, you know, alternative medicine, I feel like has kind of been given a negative connotation. In reality, conventional medicine, and this isn't saying don't use conventional medicine. That's not what we're saying here. I think there's value in conventional medicine, but to think that conventional medicine is the only way and the right way and the way that's been around since the beginning of the time is just false. It's just inaccurate. Western medicine, conventional medicine is the newest of all of the health and wellness paradigms. And so I think when you can kind of take 10 steps back and look at that, look at, at that from outside of the box that we're living in and peel back the layers, you might start to view the world and health and wellness a little bit differently. At least I did. Oh, heck yeah. And that really speaks to this philosophy. Um, basically it's like, we've got two paradigms. You've got vitalism and mechanism and vitalists like you and me, and probably many of the listeners can see the body and its parts. Mechanists can see the body and its parts too. So we have that in common, right? But vitalists can also see this innate intelligence that flows within and control controls and coordinates all functions. Mechanists can't see it. So that's where we see this mechanistic model where you go to this doctor for your heart, you go to this doctor for your stomach, you go to this doctor for your foot. They don't, they don't think that any of that is connected. Mm -hmm. They're all separate and they don't even talk about it, but vitalists see the body and it's whole and it's holistic. And they always are saying vitalists are like mechanists. If you could just open your eyes and see what I see, then you could see so much more. There's so much more beauty here and mechanists just can't see it. And so understanding that philosophical like relationship of it has really helped me extend grace to people that view the world differently than I do because they just can't see it. Yeah. I love that. It's hard to have grace sometimes, but you do it so well. You model that so well. Um, Dr. Horney, I have loved talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Do you have any last advice? Well, I have two more questions, but do you have any advice for parents to find a nervous system focused chiropractor in their area? Yes, for sure. So I have a page on my website. So my website is drcourtneykayla.com slash chiropractic or maybe it's chiropractor. Oh, I can't remember, but a page on my website. 
And it really just talks you through, like it helps equip you for what to look for in finding a chiropractor. It's wordy, it's lengthy. I'm actually going through a website um, restructure and rebuild right now where we are creating a resource, a searchable resource where you can find a chiropractor near you by just typing in your zip code. And then they will be vetted by me and my team of making sure that they specialize in the nervous system. If they have certain pediatric and prenatal qualifications, those will be listed there as well. That should be available probably by the end of August. But in the meantime, yeah. So in the meantime, you can um, just read through that page on my website and it'll just tell you what to look for, um, kind of ways to go about. There's a few resources you can currently use to help narrow it down, but just really, you know, what to be advocating for yourself for and making sure that you're receiving this quality of care. That sounds amazing. I can't wait for that to that resource to come out. Um, and we've already kind of, you've talked about your, your website and I think we said, we said your Instagram handle, but can you just repeat where people can find you and what, if any other resources that you offer? So at Dr. Courtney Kayla is my Instagram and then drcourtneykayla.com is my website. I am also the owner and founder of our well house. And so at our wealth house on Instagram, that is the chiropractic office where I practice out of, but it's also a multidisciplinary wellness collective where all the providers there are Christ-centered. And so we offer pelvic floor physical therapy, functional medicine, massage therapy, and chiropractic nervous system focused pediatric and prenatal chiropractic care. That sounds amazing. If you're in the Dallas area, go see Dr. Corny. I wish that I was still in the Dallas area. Um, I really do because I would, we would be at our wellhouse for sure. Thank you so much, Dr. Courtney. It was so great to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Taylor. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor I hope you'll join me next time.